Okay, so as we start today, we're talking about the Great Commission and the mission of the church. And as we do, uh, I think we might have a few questions to ask. And uh, as we ask these questions, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask these questions uh, for you. And the first question is, why are we having this conference today? I think that's the best question to start with. Why in the world are we having this conference today? And uh, I'd like to just say a few things about that. First, we're not having this conference in order to reiterate or defend who we are and how we operate as a church. That is not why we're having this conference today. Okay? Instead, we're seeking to follow the Lord and his word faithfully, even if that means going against the grain of what is common popular, or a traditional practice of FRC. Okay? That's why we're having this conference today. So I'd like to set the stage by just stating a couple of things. Number one, I don't want these three things to get lost in all of what is going to be said today. Number one, we desire to be a church that prioritizes and mobilizes itself according to Scripture. Would we all agree with that? We desire to be a church that prioritizes and mobilizes itself according to Scripture. Number two, we desire to live our lives corporately and individually as servants of Jesus Christ. These are, these are high-level things, right? And then number three, please know, we desire to see the lost come to salvation in Jesus Christ. We desire to see the lost come to salvation in Jesus Christ. Those three things. If the Great Commission is the fundamental mission of the church, then we should expect to see Scripture, specifically in the New Testament, confirm this reality. Would you agree? I, I think you should. So what we're going to do is we're going to closely consider the primary explicit passages concerning what is called the Great Commission and develop a thoroughly biblical theology of what this commission is. And after we've done this, we're going to discuss how these theological ideas play themselves out within the context of the church. That is, now that we have the what, we're going to consider the how and the now what. Okay? So here are some questions. Um, I, I have lots of questions, and I just wonder, as I state these questions, as I ask these questions, have you formulated an answer? Can you articulate a biblical, concise answer to all the questions that I'm about to ask? I'm going to argue, no, you can't. Um, because it's... A significant challenge, and I'm, the reason I'm going to say no, you can't probably, okay, is because I think the church at large has failed in answering a lot of these questions. That's what I think. So here are the questions, just kind of rapid fire. What is the Great Commission, and what does it look like to live your life according to the Great Commission? What are we being called to do exactly in the Great Commission? Are the words Great Commission in the Bible? And if they're not, why do we use them? Is there only one commission or are there multiple commissions? 
If an individual believer makes each and every attempt to evangelize the lost, has this person fulfilled the Great Commission? Is the Great Commission exclusively about in the individual believer's commitment to personal evangelism? Is the Great Commission exclusively about the corporate church's commitment to evangelism? What if a person or church does this and there are no converts? Is the Great Commission fulfilled because of their efforts and endeavors? If an individual believer sells all his possessions and moves to a foreign land with the intention of evangelizing them, has this person fulfilled the Great Commission? Is the Great Commission exclusively about an individual's commitment to global missions? Is the Great Commission exclusively about the corporate church's commitment to global missions? What if a person or church does this and there are no converts? Is the Great Commission fulfilled because of their efforts and endeavors? If an individual does not practice personal evangelism, is this person necessarily lost? If a church does not participate in corporate events for the sake of personal evangelism, is this church disobedient or a dead church filled with unbelievers? If a church does not participate in corporate events for the sake of global missions, is this church a disobedient or dead church filled with unbelievers? To whom is this commission given? Well, I think we're going to find out pretty quickly that it's given to the 11 apostles. Is there warrant to say that this commission given to them is simultaneously a commission given to us today? Did Jesus intend for this commission to be carried on on an individual level or on a corporate level? That's a lot of questions. And I think, I, at least I hope, actually, that at least one of those questions you said, yeah, right. I'm actually not sure how to answer that question. I hope at least one of those questions did that for you. And I will admit that several of those questions did that for me. And I have not yet, I, I will not claim that I can perfectly articulate any and all questions that we have about this. I can't. But we have a particular trajectory that we are setting, and we want to do our very best today to push forward in that trajectory of answering these questions, articulating them well, and with our end goal being a church that prioritizes and mobilizes itself according to Scripture. Okay? So here's how we're going to go about this today. Um, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to answer the big question, what is the Great Commission? And we're just going to walk through a couple of things. We just asked some Great Commission questions, and now we're going to look at the Great Commission, Commission passages. What are the Great Commission passages? What is the Great Commission? Jane asked me the other day, or maybe she told me, maybe it was a statement. She said, I have yet to understand what exactly the Great Commission Conference is. And I said, fantastic, you will learn. Is that not what I said, Jane? Mm -hmm. So, we have not even defined it. So what are the Great Commission passages? We've not even defined what the Great Commission is, and we're going to find very quickly that the Great Commission, those words never appear in Scripture. It's something that we have labeled, and I'll tell you about how that came to be. But there are commonly five passages that are referenced as Great Commission passages, and those are the ones I want to look at together. First passage we're going to look at together is Matthew 28, 16 through 20. So please write that down in your notes if you're taking notes. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. This is 
the primary go-to text for the Great Commission. Someone says, what is the Great Commission? And maybe some of you said, well, it's what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. That's the Great Commission. But what is he saying exactly? So first thing we're going to do together is we're going to spend some time looking at what Jesus said exactly. Let me begin by reading it. If you have your Bible, look at it with me. I, I want to invite you to do that. If you don't have a Bible with you, we do have more. There are some sitting right up there on that, on that ledge. Um, and then there are some at the tables as well. Let's look at it together. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. I'd like to read it. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee and to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Now, the mountaintop is a place of revelatory significance all throughout Scripture. Think of just three situations. Number one, think of Abraham and the mountain. Think of Moses and the mountain. Think of the mountain and the transfiguration. We remember those big stories, right? These are big events in time, and so this is kind of a throwback to that idea. So on this mountain, the 11 apostles saw the resurrected Jesus and worshipped him, but some, that is plural, doubted. And then Jesus declares to them, declares to them what? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him. So the authority and power of Jesus comes before the commission, which there is a commission here, is given to the church. And in fact, the commission given to the church is predicated upon the authority and power of Jesus. That's an important thought. The commission that we're about to read, whatever that is, is predicated upon the power and authority of the resurrected Christ. So he says, go therefore. Go therefore. What are the apostles being called to go and do? Christ's commission of his church? What is this? Is it to the whole church or was it to the eleven? Well, specifically in this context, who is it given to? It's given to the 11. It was given to the disciples, what we call the apostles, although all the apostles are not accounted for here because they're actually, altogether, there were 14, you know, because there was Judas in the original 12, and then there was Matthias that replaced Judas, and then there was Paul. So, not all accounted for here, but the 11 were there with him. What is a commission, just generally? If I give you a commission, right? If anybody gives anybody a commission, what is a commission? And why is this commission great? A commission is just a command or a charge given to an individual or a group. Okay, it's a command or a charge given to an individual or a group. That's a commission. It is not known who coined the term Great Commission, though it could have been a guy named Justinian von Welts, which is a fantastic name. 
he lived in the year 1621 to 1688. It's first reference ever known about Great Commission, 1600s. But it was popularized by someone that we do know, who is Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor made this popular, and he lived uh, 1832, 1905. What is, what is, what, excuse me, what is it they are to do, and what is the commission? That's the, really the question. The passage consists of, we're looking specifically at the passage now. What is it that we find? I think we should treat this text in the same way that we treat all other texts. Would you agree? That we should look at specifically the grammar, the syntax, the context. Don't, don't you agree? Isn't that what we do with other passages of Scripture? I will tell you that in my study of these particular passages and all these Great Commission texts, it's almost like that concept flies out the window and all that is said is what is always said about the Great Commission. For the most part, that is what I found, and it was altogether pretty frustrating that that's the reality. It's like everyone knows what this means, there's a traditional understanding of what this means, and all we're going to do is just say what it means and move, and move on. And if this is such an important concept for the church, don't you think that if there were a place for us to press in and see what's being said, that it would be here? I do, at least. What is the commission? We could explain it this way. There, in this passage, it consists of only one imperative, one thing that we must do, and then three supporting participles. There is one imperative with three supporting participles ending with one indicative statement. One imperative, three supporting participles, and then one indicative statement. Okay? How is an imperative different than an indicative? An indicative states the reality of what is. An imperative is a call to do something. Okay? There is a closing imperative at the end. All right? What is the one imperative? The one imperative is make disciples. That's very important. That's foundational for what we're talking about today. The one singular imperative in this text is make disciples. The three supporting participles are going, baptizing, and teaching. Those are supportive of this imperative. What are we to do? Make disciples. The three supporting participles are going, baptizing, and teaching. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all Jesus commanded them. And then what is the indicative statement? The assurance that Jesus will be with them forever. So here's an explanation of what we're reading. What is this commission, this command given by Jesus? What is it they are to go and do? What are the instructions? They not only need to know the what, but the how. Go and make disciples. That word disciples is the same word that's used. It says when the 11 disciples were there. That's at the beginning of Matthew 28, 16. Disciples, same word made here. So what they are is what they are to then go and make, right? Not apostles. You can't make an apostle, but they are to go and make disciples, which is what they are. And what are they? They are followers of Jesus. At the time in history, this is very important, at that time in history, to learn underneath a rabbi, to go under his teaching, 
uh, was an immersive, lifelong experience. To be a disciple was an immersive, lifelong experience. It was not something that you just do and you're done. It never ends until you die. That's what it is to be a disciple. But also, it's not only just learning what they say or what they do, mirroring them, imitating them. No, it is about taking their entire livelihood, their life, what they do, how they act, how they think, how they behave, and everything. You take everything of your teacher and you put it on yourself. And in fact, baptism at this time was practiced by those who would go under the teachings of another. You notice when it says, go and make disciples, baptizing them, they didn't say, and what is baptism exactly? Can you explain to us what baptism is? Did they say that? They said, okay, we understand. John the Baptist was baptizing. And they said, what is this weird thing you're doing, putting people underwater? No, they knew what baptism was. But they are to go and make disciples. They are to make disciples of what people? Where are these people found that we should make disciples of them? Well, he says next, all nations. All the nations. This is critical. Where are they to go? As the sovereign Lord of the earth, they are to go into all the earth and make disciples of all nations. Take the gospel to all the nations. Why is all emphasized? Was Jesus not already doing this? This is in significant contrast to Jesus' pre-resurrection ministry. And I'll give you some examples. You can write these references down as I read them. Matthew 15, 24 through 26. He answered, this is Jesus, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And this is that situation where she came and she knelt before him. Lord, help me. He answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I wasn't sent for you. That's weird. That seems in contrast to all we know about Jesus. There is a difference between the ministry of Jesus and the apostles before and after the resurrection. And here it is. Where are we to go, Lord? To the house of Israel and make disciples? No. To all nations. All nations. It's not closed, but it's open now. And how is that? How did that happen? Well, through my person, my work, and it is finished. And I have done something to make this open to the nations. So Matthew 10, 5 through 7. These 12 Jesus sent out, that's Matthew 10, 5 through 7, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was actually a command there, wasn't it? Does this mean, as we read, does it mean that, now Jesus, even with that woman, did he not say, okay. But we have to take what's being said here as primary ministry emphasis. Where was he sent? What was his mission? That's actually going to be a question we ask here in a little bit. Is the mission of Jesus the same thing as the mission of the church? I think you will come to realize very soon that it is not. Because you were not sent as the Son of God to the earth to die an atoning sacrifice for sins. So your mission is different than the mission of Jesus. And the mission of the church is different than the mission of Jesus. However, our mission is empowered 
and given by Jesus. Ephesians 2, 11 and 12, Paul helps with a theological understanding of this idea. He says, therefore, remember, at that time you were Gentiles in the flesh, the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the hands. Remember, you were at that time separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was the condition of the Gentiles before the work of Jesus Christ. But he says, now that's different. Well, what's changed? Jesus has done what he came to do. And so now he gives a commission that emphasizes this work, which is what? Go to all the nations. All people. This idea of all people is not new to the New Testament. It was promised all along. We'll get to that more in a while. Right now we're focusing on this particular text. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is not restricted to a particular ethnic group. We know that, and Jesus makes that explicit. God shows no partiality. So they understand that the gospel and discipleship are not restricted to the Jewish people. Okay. So let's say new disciples are made. What are we to do with them? If a person hears the message and accepts it, what do we do with that person? And then Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, the new disciples then are baptized. So, unless the people are not, are, are baptized, unless people are not baptized, unless people are baptized, which way do I want to say that? Unless people are baptized, the commission Jesus gave is not being fulfilled. Unless people are being baptized, the commission is not being fulfilled because what did he say to go do? Go and make disciples and baptize them. Okay, so we need to be baptizing people. That's interesting. And that's part of the Great Commission? Yes. It's obviously very important. There's not a whole lot to this commission. And what is baptism exactly? Well, we talked about that. This wasn't anything new for them. However, it does have Christian emphasis. Its meaning has taken on even more, right? Christian baptism, baptism functions as the initiatory rite of believers ordained by the Lord Jesus himself. Those who are disciples are to be baptized. Those who have become obedient from the heart to the gospel, those who have repented and believed, are to be baptized in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, In him also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him, you were sealed with baptism. No, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the inheritance? Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? Does baptism seal you? No, it does not. In fact, the Holy Spirit seals you. So if baptism does not seal us, then why do we do it? When Jesus gave a command, a commission, that disciples of Jesus are to be baptized to show the inward sealing of the spirit that has happened. And that is why we say that baptism, water baptism, is an external expression of an internal reality, right? The Holy Spirit is our seal. A couple more passages on baptism. We're going to continue to work through the text. Colossians 2, 9 through 13, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, 
who is the head of all rule and authority, and in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, and God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Why did I read that passage? Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. There is the connection between faith preceding baptism. Your faith does not, or your baptism does not raise you. Your baptism does not seal you. The Holy Spirit seals you. And how is it that the Holy Spirit seals you? Well, we know that. It is through faith. So although baptism shows us dying, it's death, buried, there is a resurrection that takes place. And did that happen through the water? No, it happened through the raising of the Holy Spirit, through faith. Okay. Romans 6, 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, as we were raised from death to life, we are now living proof of the, of the power of the resurrection. The power of the Holy Spirit is now on us, and this shows. It's, it's an example to the world of what's happened to us. So, I might say, believer's baptism that is the baptism of a genuine disciple of Jesus, is the external display of this internal reality, spiritual cleansing and renewal, and the power of the resurrection life. Public display that a person has given their entire life over to Jesus as a disciple. Because that's what disciples do. I have given my entire self a fully immersive, lifelong experience to following after Jesus. This is a disciple. And then it follows teaching them. Oh, so there are, there are two things that follow with a disciple. You have a disciple, you baptize them, and then you let them be. Teaching them. Teaching them what? This is important, and I think a neglected idea. Teaching them all that Jesus commanded. Is that correct? teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. What does that mean? So you raise your children up, you teach them to observe all you command them, and then they just do it. <laughs> and then they just live their life in obedience to all you taught them. Or is a teaching to observe a lifelong experience? Do you still need to be taught how to observe all that Jesus commanded? Will you ever be done with that? No. So we need to continually be taught to observe. Not only taught, but taught to observe. Now, taught to observe implies being taught what he said, right? And this is why he taught his apostles. And we have the writings of the apostles and the teachings that are more explicit to the individual and to the church about how these things actually play themselves out. So we have the doctrine of what it means to follow Jesus in the rest of our New Testament, right? So is it important that we study the word of God to know all that was said and how we're to play these things out? That's why, that's why we need to be committed to scripture. 
unless the people are being taught to observe all Jesus commanded, unless the disciples are being taught to observe all Jesus commanded, the great commission is not being fulfilled. This maybe is a weird mindset issue because I believe it has been my experience that the great commission has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with them. And that is false. That is false. That is not what scripture says. Discipleship is fulfilling the Great Commission as well. Not solely or simply discipleship, because there are other elements to it. But discipleship is fulfilling the Great Commission. And that is exactly what the text says, but many times it's overlooked. As we are taught to observe all Jesus commanded, as we baptize disciples, we are fulfilling the Great Commission. We are pursuing the Great Commission. Does this make sense, what I'm saying? This is exactly what the text is saying. What are they to be taught? All the things that Jesus commanded them and to observe them, to maintain them, right? Lifelong discipleship. Do you ever stop being a disciple? Do you ever stop learning? No. So it's intentional, intentional effort focused on discipleship. As we look at the rest of the New Testament in the how and what context, we will begin to see the importance and priority given to the local church in this matter we will begin to see the importance placed on the local church in this matter. The Great Commission cannot be fulfilled only in terms of personal or corporate evangelism because the Great Commission is not simply about evangelizing the lost. It is not. Does it have some to do with that? Yes, and we will get to that. But it is not simply about the outside world, taking Jesus to the world, and we fulfill the Great Commission. Wrong. The, some of the questions I asked at the beginning, hopefully, are being filled in with their answers. Can someone who gives their life to personal evangelism as an individual, and yet they never see anyone come to Christ, they're not baptizing them, they're not teaching them to observe all Jesus commanded them regularly, if they're not doing those things then the Great Commission is not being fulfilled because it necessarily takes baptizing disciples and teaching them to observe all Jesus commanded. This is an all-encompassing commission. It is not one thing. It is, it is spread out over a larger idea. And Jesus will always be with them as they accomplish this task. For how long will Jesus be with them? Until that age is over. What age? The present age. When the end of the ages comes. This present evil age, as it's called. One day there will be a new age, and we will be with him in glory. But until that age comes, the church is on mission to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all Jesus commanded. Now, these are two of the 
participles, right? So go there for and make disciples. That's our imperative. And there are three supporting participles, <coughs> baptizing, teaching, and what is the participle we have not mentioned? Going. Going. Because going is a necessary requirement because you can't sit still and fulfill this. You can't sit still and baptize someone. You can't sit still and teach someone. You can't sit still and make a disciple. You must go. You cannot stay. It is implied. So I have referenced, we're going to move on to the next passage. I took a little bit more time on that one because it's uh, so important to the conversation. I reference commonly Colossians 1, 28 and 29. So let me explain how this finds itself in context. Colossians 1, 28 and 29 him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ, and it is for this end, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I've been confronted about that and said, well, I disagree. It's strange if you would disagree with that. First of all, it's scripture, and it was Paul's heart. Second, uh, it is the Great Commission. <laughs> that is the Great Commission in different words. Listen to what it says. Him we proclaim, warning everyone. We're, we're proclaiming Christ to everyone. We're warning everyone. And we're teaching everyone with all wisdom. In order that we might present everyone mature in Christ, because isn't that what we're to do? To teach them to observe all Jesus commanded. And it is to this end that I toil, struggling. How? With all his energy that he powerfully works within me, because he is with me always to the end. That is the Great Commission. This is what we are to do. Let's look at the next passage. The second one we're going to look at together is Mark 16, 14 through 20. Mark 16, 14 through 20. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands. If they drink deadly poison, it will not harm them. They will lay their hands on the sick. They will recover. Then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere. Everywhere. Interesting. While the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by these accompanying signs. Now, did they preach everywhere? Well, everywhere means everywhere. It doesn't mean everywhere. They were not in Middle Tennessee preaching the gospel. Okay? Now, did they go, they, there was no place off limits to them. They went everywhere preaching the gospel. Right? Now, about this passage. Um, 
most scholarship agrees that this passage is not part of the original gospel. This is not, that's why for most of you, if you have an ESV, it's in brackets. It's because the primary documentation manuscripts do not include the longer ending of Mark. Mark, Mark ends in, in uh, um, fifth, uh, eight. Thank you very much. I don't have it in my notes. I stopped, I started the scripture at verse 14. So, yes, in verse 8. And uh, it's kind of jarring how it ends. And so, later on, it was kind of filled in. Uh, If you want more information on that, you can look at the Texting Canon Institute, and there's lots of details about that. But anyway, uh, we'll still look at it a little bit. Did the apostles proclaim to each and every person on each and every continent on the planet? No. Did they fail? The idea runs parallels to Matthew's account. The emphasis is on the go, while the emphasis is actually on the place of going to make disciples. Where? All the world. Where? All creation. There's nothing off limits. It's for everyone. Can an individual fulfill the intended commission of Jesus by his own personal endeavors? Can any one individual fulfill this commission? I mean, the answer is obviously absolutely not. The goal is to make disciples and baptize them and teach them. Um, Now, is personal evangelistic effort and the going implied? Well, certainly. Certainly it is. Another question about this passage that you have to wonder is, is what we read here being described or prescribed? It is something that we see happening or is it something we are being told to do? For example... As you believed, were you able to cast out demons, speak in tongues, you're not affected by poisonous snakes, any, any poison you drink does not affect you, and you can heal any and all people who are sick. Because it says all these signs will accompany those who believe. Now, you believe, don't you? What's the deal? If I drink poison, I'm probably going to die. Am I not a true believer then? Now, it says that all these things, as they went about preaching, as apostles, these signs accompanied them, confirming the message. Right? So they went out and they preached everywhere. Absolutely. That's what Jesus told them to do. You notice there's nothing about teaching in that passage. There's nothing about teaching any, anything. Let's move on to the next one, Luke 24, verses 44 through 49. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that in everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he opened his mind, their, their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to his, to all the, in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. Now, I say this, I say some of these things in such a way that you, that you see that you're, maybe sometimes our interpretation of what's happening is a little different because you can't consistently interpret these things because you are not told to stay in Jerusalem, are you? Until you are clothed with power on high. And then when you begin to preach the gospel, it must start in Jerusalem. Oh, no. 
But that's what he told them to do. Okay, right. So, although there were very clear things said to them, it was a description of reality, but how do these things impact us today? Is this commission also given to us? Because it was definitely given to them with very specifics about their situation, but was this given to us or was it just given to the apostles? So you don't go too far with your thoughts. I would, I'm arguing, yes, it is given to us, but the way it looks for us today is not as apostles. We're not apostles. I feel like I have to keep saying that a lot, not because you're not agreeing with me, but just because it seems to come up an awful lot. I think some people do interpret this as if they were an apostle. You're not an apostle, and neither am I. So the way that this works itself out is different than if you were an apostle, right? Okay. What is being said here in this passage, in this Great Commission passage? Well, you notice that there is actually no charge given to the church here except to stay in the city. That's the imperative command here. But there is a description of what will take place because the emphasis here in Luke is on prophetic fulfillment. It's a statement of what will happen, not on what, what, what you must do. You are witnesses of these things taking place. You are witnesses to the fact that all this that has been spoken of me in the law and Moses and the prophets, which means what? I'm looking at you. You know the answer. All that is written in Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. What is it? The Tanakh. You know that. Let it sit in. That means the entire Hebrew Bible. We're, we're working on learning that together, so I was looking at them. So, yes, that means the, that all of the Hebrew scriptures, right? All that was spoken of me then, your witnesses that it's actually happening here and now. This is exciting. Everything written about me. So, what we know, first of all, is that there is not one specific text being fulfilled it is all that was written of me in the Hebrew scriptures is being fulfilled. So, he said, now what is being fulfilled? In verse 46 it says, thus it is written, not in one specific passage, but it is written in, in the Hebrew scriptures, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Did they witness that? Did they witness that? Yes. And that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And oh man, where are they located right now? Jerusalem, amazing. So this is going to happen. He says, and you're witnesses of these things. He's not telling them what to do. He's saying this is what's going to happen. Prophecy is being fulfilled. And now then he says, so I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, that is the Holy Spirit. So stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high the setting of prophetic fulfillment. Some of those ideas I'll read for you briefly. Actually, I'll reference the others and, and just read a couple of them. Okay, so Genesis 3, 7 through 9. When the Lord is speaking to... Oh, excuse me. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. That's the one I wanted to go to. 
Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless, those, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Isaiah 49.6, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. Go to all creation. Proclaim this message to all nations. This is fulfillment language. Isaiah 2, 2 through 3, this one's very specific. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains and it will be lifted up above all the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob, and that he may teach us his ways, that we might walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from where? Jerusalem. That's where it's going to start. That's where the word is going to be spread because this is when the church would be born. This is where the church would be born and it would go out from there to all nations. By the way, in the ESV, it says should in one place. And that's not a consistent translation. Uh, the, the NASB, I think, has it better. It says, He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again on the third day, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Why? It's because it's about prophetic fulfillment. It's saying this is what would take place. That's what was written. That's what's going to happen, Right? given that they are witnesses to these things. In order for this to find its fulfillment, they must stay in Jerusalem until they're clothed with power, a power that was necessary for the proclamation of the gospel to the nations. They needed this power. They need the Holy Spirit. Why is the Spirit necessary for the growth of Christ's church? Keep this question in mind when we look at the mission of the church, okay? Now, Passage number four, Acts 1-8. We're going to Acts next rather than John because Luke-Acts is kind of a two-volume situation. We're just going to kind of look at the continuation of the story, okay? So now that that happens, then we go to Acts chapter 1. It's kind of a continuation of this concept. And what do you notice happens in Acts 1-8, which is commonly referenced as a Great Commission passage? It says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. What do you notice that's significant about this passage? That, that there is no imperative. He's just stating what will be. This is what's going to happen. Whether you know it or not, whether you understand all that this means or not, let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, there's no work for you to be doing there. It's, it's going to happen. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Oh, there's a common thread here, isn't there? 
witnesses are what believers are, not something they choose to do or not do. There's, it's weird because our terminology gets all shaken up in a lot of circumstances, and we say, for example, I'm going to go witnessing. Well, I get what you mean by that. I get what you mean by that. But that's the vocabulary there has an issue. Because it, witnessing is not something you go and do. A witness is something that you are. You are a witness of Jesus Christ. You, your life bears witness <clears throat> to the resurrection power, to the redeemed life. Okay? You are witnesses. That is what believers are. I'm going to quote John MacArthur here. <clears throat> there is a sense, in, a sense in which believers do not even choose whether to be witnesses. They are witnesses. The only question is how effective their witness is. I agree with that. Another quote here from Kevin DeYoung. If you're looking for a picture of the early church giving itself to creation care, plans for societal renewal, strategies to serve the community in Jesus' name, you're not going to find them in the book of Acts. If you're looking for preaching, teaching, and the centrality of the word, this is your book. The story of Acts is the story of the earliest Christians' effort to carry out the commission given to them. Absolutely, yes. Yes. What is the difference between evangelizing and witnessing? R.C. Sproul says, In the New Testament, witnessing is a generic word that encompasses different ways of communicating the gospel, and evangelism is one of those things. Is evangelism part of witnessing? Yes, but it is not all that witnessing is. Your life bears witness. You bear witness, and we're gonna, we'll get more into that, but... The general idea is that you are taking what is invisible and making it visible to the world. This is the idea of being a witness. Are you a witness for Jesus Christ? Yes, you are. The question is just how effective is your witness? You understand? Witnessing is not something you go and do. A witness is what you are. Should you be an effective witness for Jesus Christ in this world? Yes. Do we all want to be? Does our church collectively want to be a better witness for Jesus Christ in this world? That all the nations might know him? Yes. First Peter, I'm going to give you three passages. First Peter 2, 11 and 12. First Peter 2, 11 and 12, and it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do you see the witness happening there? That your very life is a witness to Jesus Christ, and this is not to be diminished. Some people diminish this reality. The scriptures do not diminish this reality. You are to be, by everything you are, everything you do, everything you say, you are a shining light in a dark world, always because you are the witness of Jesus Christ on this earth, and you are showing forth the resurrection power of salvation in Jesus Christ for everyone who would believe. Do not diminish the power of a witness 
of a transformed life. It is important. Do not diminish it. 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ might be put to shame. Two things are happening here. One is that there is a reactionary thing happening here, that someone asks you for the hope that is in you, about the hope that is in you, and you must be prepared to defend what you believe. If you are not prepared to defend what you believe, you're not being the best witness that you could be. You're not being as effective as you should be transport us to Wednesday nights and we see why that's important, right? We need to be effective witnesses and part of this includes being able to defend what we believe. We must defend what we believe. Also, why are they being reviled? Because of their good behavior. Why? Because their behavior is shining forth as a light for the gospel. Does your behavior shine forth as a light for the gospel? They see how you act, how you behave, how you talk, how you interact with your spouse, how you interact with your children, and they say, now that, I see a transformed life. So that probably sticks us in the heart, right? Sticks me in the heart. I want to be a better shining light for Jesus Christ in this world than I am. And as we live that transformed life, we are learning to observe all that Jesus commanded us because we are disciples. And as we learn to be transformed, we ourselves are part of fulfilling the Great Commission as we become more and more immersed in Jesus. This is part of the Great Commission. Not only is there the individual witness, as we just mentioned, oh, I forgot one, didn't I? Philippians 2, 14 and 15, excuse me. Philippians 2, 14 and 15, it says, we started late, so we're going to combine our discussion time if you're worried about the schedule. I made that decision a while ago when we started late. Do all things without grumbling and disputing that you might be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You see it? Do you see it with me? Okay. So not only is there the individual witness, there is the church itself as the collective witness, right? Uh, let me just quote Jonathan Lehman here, and then we're going to move on to John 20. Jonathan Lehman writes, the church's goal is not to transform the world. If it was your goal, you'd fail because you can't do it anyway. To but instead, to live together as a transformed world and to invite the nations in word and deed to the transformer. You like that? All right, fifth passage. And this is where we'll end our first session, okay? Fifth passage. John 20, 19 through 21. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. 
And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And here's the commission. As the Father has sent me, so even I am sending you. It's far more simplified here, isn't it? It's like, wow, you're sending us where and to do what and how and in what power and strength? Well, we know all of that. The Lord did not give us one gospel account, but four. And collectively, we understand. Also, he provided us with all the writings of the New Testament and Old that we might better, more cohesively understand how all the parts fit together. And if we're not working at how all the parts fit together, we're going to end up unbalanced. Jesus was sent by the Father into the world, and so now Jesus sends his disciples into the world. Yes. They are not to give themselves as an atoning sacrifice for sins, however, because their mission is not the same as the mission of Jesus. So he gives them their mission, the mission of the church. However, let me, uh, let me read here from D.A. Carson. From a missiological point of view, such emphasis must also be joined with similar study of the other commissions, as we've done, as reported in the other Gospels. There is sufficient comprehensiveness, both here and elsewhere, to make Christians aware that they, are, they never have an excuse to rest on their laurels, he says, on their crowns, their achievements, or whatever they've done or to define their task too narrowly. Perfect obedience to the Son, modeled on Jesus, perfect obedience. It is a daunting as a challenge as the command to teach others all that Jesus commanded. What he's saying here, and again this was D.A. Carson, is that we see the taking of the gospel to the worlds as a daunting task. He says just as daunting a task as for you to be a disciple. You are not only to go and make disciples, but you are to be a disciple. As a disciple who is sent by Jesus out into the world, we are to be disciples who, as you have heard, and I, although it is cliche, I don't like cliches, although it is cliche, it is true. We are disciples who are sent to, in turn, make more disciples. Disciples are to make disciples, but you should not neglect being a disciple in order to make disciples it doesn't work that way. You're imbalanced if you, that's what you think. What is a disciple? How do they bear witness? Let's look at our last passage of reference here. And that is Titus 2, 1 through 5. Look there with me just for a moment. Did I say 5? I meant 15. Titus 2, 1 through 15. Now, there's a lot here in this passage, and I'm just going to try to narrow in on what's most important, okay? Titus 2, 1 through 15. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Oh, why is there an urge for there to be teachers who teach what is right? Because we are taught and told, we are commanded to teach 
everyone to observe, disciples to observe all that Jesus commanded. So is teaching very, very important, and it's very important to be accurate, sound. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and in love and in steadfastness. And older women, likewise, are to be, uh, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the younger women to, live, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands. Why? That the word of God might not be reviled. In other words, what is he saying? Because your behavior, the way you act in this world, the role that you take is a witness to the gospel. That the word itself could be reviled by your behavior and by your role. Yes, that's true. That's what's being said. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity. Sound speech that, not, that cannot be uh, condemned so that the opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. So again, there it is. It's, it's, in, conduct, it's in conduct. It's in sound speech. It's that everything about you is consistent. Why? Because when you're living a consistent life, they're like, they want to condemn you. They want to say bad things about you, but that I, I guess I don't know what bad to say about you except that you believe this old stuff that's crazy. Right? At least you're consistent. <laughs> you know, at least you're consistent. For the grace of God, that's verse 11. No, 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 I'm sorry. Uh, verse 9. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Why? So that in everything, in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior. Do you see that? The doctrine of God is something that you clothe yourself in. I told you, it's a lifelong, completely immersive experience to be a disciple of Jesus. And as you live your life as a disciple, being transformed, you bear witness to the truth of the gospel. Your conduct matters. Your witness matters. What you say matters. How you treat your spouse matters. And so forth. For the grace of God, verse 11, has appeared bringing salvation for all people, all people, oh, all people, what all people? We know that in context. What people? We just talked about this, didn't we, on Wednesday. What people are we talking about? Every single individual or for all the nations, for the whole world? Obviously, yes. He's brought salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to do what? to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. What matters here? What is, the, what is the emphasis here? Live as a disciple. That's the emphasis. Live as a disciple. Show the gospel. How do you show the gospel? Renounce ungodliness. Renounce worldly passions. Live a self-controlled life. Live upright. Live a godly life in this present age. As you wait for our blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for... What does it say here? What should we be zealous for? I think, I think a lot of people insert something different right there. But what does it say? Zealous for what? Good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. What? 
Why? How? Well, because you're to teach all that Jesus, teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded. It is his authority and power at work here. 